Hello, everybody. Wow. Well, I'm glad that you guys are here, too. That was really nice. Um, I'm Nikki Polly. I work on staff here at Orchard. Um, I'm glad you guys are here. It's good to be here. So last week, Elliot kicked off a series, right? It's called Starting Point. We're not going to claim that it's our idea. We stole it from a series that we heard that we thought was incredible. So if you think any part of the series is good, that's good because it's none of our own thoughts. Um, we're not that good. Um, okay, so we learned that everything has a starting point, right? You had a starting point. I had a starting point. And every single stage in our life has a starting point. Um, and since Elliot started with pictures, that was really witty. Let's give it, I mean, that was good. I'm going to show pictures too. Okay, so Nikki's starting points. Let's see, what do we got first? Okay, this starts me being super dramatic and really passionate, I like to call it, but that was the start of it. I was probably like 18 months old. Um, next. <laughs> okay, listen, I can explain. It was the 80s. And it was the start of a series of horrible haircuts involving front and side bangs and perms. It was bad. We'll go through that quicker. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about this one, but Elliot freaked out and said, what is on your head? And it's a banana? Because I'm supposed to be a monkey in my ballet costume, but it doesn't really look like a monkey. It's just terrifying. So that really isn't a starting point. I just thought it was really funny. Next. <laughs> That's... The starting point of our marriage, I'm going to choose to think that you're whistling at me and not Jacob. Next. <laughs> this is the starting point of my faith. It was my baptism. And that um, is my dad's awesome 80s mustache. No, I really put that in there to see if you were listening because we learned last week that the starting point of faith is not baptism. And we also learned that it's not the... Yeah, did that make anybody else want to throw up when Elliot said that? I know it's true, the starting point of faith is not the Bible, but that felt like a naughty thing that he said. He's right, but I got a little upset about it, okay? So, um, everything had a starting point. And what we're going to talk about in this series is that oftentimes, um, our faith has a starting point, and it oftentimes starts in childhood with what we learn from our parents or from people around us. And we think that many times people get away from their faith and they don't even mean to. But they get away from faith because what they learned as a kid, maybe something like God is good and rewards good and punishes bad and answers prayers. When they got into like later life, those things didn't seem true, right? Like they prayed for someone and it didn't go the way they wanted to. Or you look around the world and it seems like there's a lot of bad that gets rewarded and a lot of good that doesn't get um, noticed at all. So we think that a lot of times, good intending people um, just kind of slip away from their faith. And we think that's because we start to look at God through our life experiences. You know, because this happened in my life, it means this about God. Instead of looking at God and then looking at our life experiences through that. So we want to get back to this starting point of building a more solid foundation for faith. And so Elliot told us last week that the Christian faith, the starting point is one question. And that question is, who is Jesus? It's a super huge important question that we think we're all going to have to answer and we actually like really have to come to terms with the answer to this question. So we're going to build a case for this and we're not going to answer that question tonight because we're only in week two. We got a while. Um, but it's a question we're going to keep coming back to. Another place that people often start Christian faith is um, the statement you're a sinner. Now if you've ever seen those people they come to you on I campus sometimes. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? 
and they yell at people like, you're going to hell, and you're a sinner, and you're dressed like a, and then they say mean words, and then, and they say all this stuff, but it starts with, you're a sinner. And that's a place that oftentimes we choose to start faith. Sin, it's a word that you usually only hear in church, right? Your mom and dad don't usually say, okay, we need to talk because you've sinned against me. And administration doesn't call you into the school and say, you know, you need to sit down, we have to talk about your sin today. It's a word that we use in church. I think it's a word that we don't use anywhere else because it's uncomfortable. It makes us feel condemned, and I think we're kind of offended by it, honestly. So we don't use it. Instead, we've come up with another word for it. And it's a word that we feel better about. And the word is, I made a... Oh my gosh, you did it. I didn't even tell you when you did it. Okay, mistake. We feel so much better about a mistake. I made a mistake. It was a mistake. She made a mistake. We all feel better about that. There's one problem with the word mistake when we use it to describe our behavior or our condition. And the problem is that I don't think that it adequately describes everything that we call a mistake. Okay? So stick with me on this. A mistake is something that you make on a math test. A mistake is something you make when you are driving and you go the wrong way. A mistake usually happens because you have insufficient knowledge or you didn't know better or it was an accident, right? It's like when my kids, <laughs> you'll walk into the room, someone has a slap mark across their face, and you're like, oh my gosh, who hit you? And they'll all stand there and be like, who hit him? And they'll be like, it was a mistake. Like my hand just accidentally slapped him across the face. My kids, at, like as young as they are, have already learned if you say it's a mistake, you don't get in trouble, or so they think. But mistake doesn't actually describe what we do because sometimes we make mistakes on purpose, right? I mean, if we're calling them mistakes, sometimes we do them on purpose. Sometimes we know exactly what we're doing and we do it anyways. Sometimes we make mistakes over and over and over, the same mistake. Sometimes we actually even plan our mistakes, don't we? Are you guys starting to catch on? Like, mistake doesn't exactly work to describe our naughty behaviors. Mistakes are really actually accidental, and we're supposed to learn from them. We're not supposed to keep doing the same mistake over and over. So if we're going to refer to our whoopses as mistakes, then what would you call somebody who does a mistake over and over again? Mistaker, okay? So we're starting with you guys as mistakers. But it seems to me like there might be something else going on. Because you can correct a mistake, right? Do you remember back in grade school when if you messed up on a test, they give it back to you and you just circle the other answer and turn it back in, right? That's what you do with mistakes. You correct them. But the problem is you can't correct you. And in regards to your repeated mistakes, it appears as though you're the problem or I'm the problem. And we seem to have a hard time correcting ourselves, don't we? I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this whole self-correction thing. And I'm guilty of this. If there's something that I know I'm doing wrong, and I set out, you know, whether it's a New Year's resolution or whatever, if I got caught and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do whatever the negative behavior is. And you don't do it for like two weeks. And you feel great about yourself, don't you? You're like, yes, I'm doing great. And then what do you do to reward yourself? You make the mistake again, right? I deserve this. I haven't eaten candy for three weeks. I'm going to eat a whole bag tonight because I deserve it. That's like insanity, right? If it's actually something we know that hurts us and we take a break from it because we know it's wrong and then we go right back to it, do you start to see that maybe this isn't working? At least let's embrace the idea that maybe we have a deeper problem than the occasional mistake. 
perhaps you and I are a sinner. See, we can't even say it loud. We have to say it really quiet. A sinner. A sinner. Someone who knows better and does it anyways. And if we are going to answer the question, who is Jesus, we have to first start and figure out who we are. And a sinner might be a more accurate description. So what did Jesus teach about sin? He talked about sin in regards to how it affects relationships. He said that sin severs and breaks relationships. And I don't have to tell you guys that. Sin harms our relationship with God, and it harms our relationship with other people. And you guys know this. I want you to think about when someone wrongs you, right? It happens all the time. Someone wrongs you, and you build up the courage, and you call them out on it, and you say, this hurt me, this hurt us, I don't know how we're going to go on. And the problem is, if they don't see it as sin, if they see it as a mistake, you can talk louder, then not when I'm talking, but when I ask you a question. If they see it as a mistake, what do they do? They say, sorry. That's what I do. Jacob, you can ask him. He'll call me out on something, and I'll go, oh, sorry. And I mean, are we fine then? Are Jacob and I just, oop, oop, that's great. He says, thanks, I appreciate it. No. No one, like if you go to someone, you say, I'm hurt, and they go, mm, sorry, okay, sorry, sorry. That doesn't help anybody feel better, right? When damage is actually done, and someone doesn't see it the same way we do, there's permanent divide in the relationship. Especially, I'm just sitting here thinking, you don't even get an I'm at the beginning of that. Do you know what I mean? It's just a sorry. Not even an I'm sorry. Mistakes are accidents and don't require forgiveness. The only way to restore relationships is for the offender to admit there was an offense. And it should be something like this. I'm sorry because I was wrong. It wasn't a mistake. I did it on purpose, and I'm sorry. And don't any of you dare go tell my husband that I'm saying this right now. Some of us believe, um, maybe we were taught that being a sinner means we're going to hell, right? Weren't we all taught that? And I think some of us weren't only, don't only think that, but we think we're going to hell and that God cannot wait to send us there. We think that God sees our sin and is just waiting to pounce on us and send us to hell. But you see, when God talks about sin, he talks about it in a really different way. He talks about it in this all-inclusive way. Isn't that nice of him, including us all? And this is, I'm going to give you an example. This is from Matthew 5. So um, people are trying to figure out, you know, like, how do we follow the law? How do I get a right standing with God? And he answers it by saying this. He goes, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. It was one of the Ten Commandments. So everybody said, yep, yep, we shouldn't murder. And they're hitting their buddies and saying, I've never murdered. And then Jesus says to them, but I say, if you have anger in your heart towards a brother or sister, you're going to be judged just as harshly. And everyone did what you guys do, like, what? And then he says, he takes it a step farther. He keeps raising the bar so that it includes anyone. He says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. And everyone again is like, I'm fine, I've never done that. And then look at this, it says, but if anyone looks at another one lustfully, they have already committed adultery in their heart. Can you imagine the silence that dropped over the crowd? That's what Jesus did, is he jacked up the standard so high that no one was blameless. Everyone was in the same boat. It's not just your action that's a sin, but it's your thoughts. But God also taught, Jesus also taught us that God's willingness to forgive us is what reconnects us to him. 
He said, you think you've done a few things wrong? Like, you know, you go into it, I think no one's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. And then he points out that you're way worse off than you think, so that everybody's feeling doomed. And then he follows it up with, I have good news. And he said, I came here for doomed people. He said, I love doomed people. I love doomed sinners. And if you look at the Gospels, if you look at the stories about Jesus, and you really should, because it's incredible, you can learn so much about his character, you see that he's attracted to sinners. That's who he hung out with. And never once, and I need you to hear this, never once did he ever threaten them with hell. I'm not saying hell isn't a real place, and that people don't go there, but he did not threaten people with hell. He said quite the opposite. He invited us into a relationship with him for all eternity, and it started with our sin. Jesus' response to sinners is to offer restoration, not condemnation. So we're going to look at a story that shows this, and this is from John 8. And I'm not going to read it all to you, but I'm going to tell you about it, because I'm getting really good at telling stories, because I have to tell them at bedtime all the time. So if I'm not, you're going to pretend like I'm a good storyteller anyways. So uh, Jesus was going into the temple, and he was going to teach. And people were sitting down, and he was getting ready to teach. And um, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees drug a woman in, and this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And they had set this up in advance. They were so proud of themselves. They thought, we're finally going to trip Jesus up. And they said, hey, what do you say that we should do with her? Because the law of Moses, you know, like the law that you wrote, says that we should stone her. And so they were so proud of themselves. Here's this lady, completely exposed. And what Jesus did next was crazy. He bent down in the dust, in the dirt, and started doodling or writing. And it doesn't say what he wrote, but some people think that he wrote down the sins of all the guys that brought her. (laughs) And whatever he did, it intimidated everyone. And he stood up and he said, yep, you're right. She sinned. And the one of you who is perfect, who is without sin, go ahead and throw that first stone. And then he bent down and started writing again. And one by one, all the men who brought her in left. You see, Jesus didn't justify her sin or minimize it. She was guilty as charged, and she deserved punishment. But he worded it in a way that no one could make it happen. So after a little while, he stood back up, and he said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No, sir, not one. And what he said next is like the biggest game changer plot shift of all time, and it exactly shows us how Jesus feels about sinners. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Jesus' entire purpose is restoration, not condemnation. See, although this title of sinner is uncomfortable, it's necessary. It's so important that we face and embrace our status of sinners because then we begin to recognize our need for forgiveness. Because a mistaker doesn't ask for forgiveness, they don't need it. All a mistaker needs is another opportunity to do better next time. But your Heavenly Father comes along and wants a relationship with you and He wants it to be restored and He wants you to seek forgiveness. But the only way that you're going to seek that restoration is to admit that you need forgiveness. And the only way you admit you need forgiveness is if you acknowledge that you have, in fact, sinned. We're going to look at another story, um, and this is a parable, so it wasn't a real story that happened, but it was a made-up story that Jesus told people to illustrate a point. And this is the story of the prodigal son. You've probably heard it before. 
Um, so what's going on, uh, and this is um, from Luke, and what's going on is this uh, kid, there's two sons, and one of the sons goes to his dad and says, you know what, um, I kind of want you to die, and I've noticed you're not dying, and I want you to die because I want my half of the inheritance, so can we just pretend that you're dead, and I'll take my half, and the dad does it, and the kid leaves. He leaves the country, and he goes off and wastes his money on partying, on ridiculous things, and pretty soon the money runs out, and he realizes that he has messed up. And he gets back to his dad's place, and he says to his dad, and this is from Luke 15, 21, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he recognized his sin. He recognized that relationship was broken, broken bad, and it was his fault, it was his sin that did it. He didn't look at his dad and say, sorry. He owned it. He owned every part of it. And the way that the father in this story responds to his son is exactly how our heavenly father responds to us when we admit our sin. The dad quickly said, grab my best robe and put it on him. Get rings for his fingers. Get sandals for his feet. Kill our biggest cow. We're going to have a party because my son was lost and now he's found. And you have to think that the son probably had more prepared to his speech, right? Like, okay, do you want to know why or how this happened? Or, but his dad didn't care. His dad didn't care because his son's thinking was in the right place. He knew and he admitted that he was wrong and he had sinned. When you think about Jesus and you think about this restart button that we're talking about, admitting sin is the way back to the relationship. You have to embrace who you are to get back. You have to stop making silly excuses. And don't we come up with incredible ones? Whenever I get called on on something, I like to not say, well, sometimes I'll say sorry. But then I like to quickly remind everybody of the list of amazing things I do. Like, that's ridiculous. Why don't I just say I'm sorry? I screwed up. I knew it, and I screwed up. We have to embrace that we've sinned. When Jesus talks about sin, the message he gave was, you are a sinner who needs to be forgiven. And I forgive sinners through the death of Jesus. Jesus always saw the acknowledgement of sin as the means to an end. An end that we cannot get to any other way. You will never know me until you admit that there's something wrong with you. Okay, I'm going to tell you another story. Are you really excited? Okay. This story goes back to the 80s, so let's remember the hair. <laughs> I was like seven years old. I'm the oldest of three, and my sister's somewhere in this room. I was the boss of everything. So my brother would play whatever I told him to. He was two years younger. So I'm about seven. He's about five. We're outside. It was like zero rain had fallen all summer. It was super hot. We play in the sandbox. You could hardly walk in the grass. We were barefoot all the time because it hurt so bad. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, and we had not discussed this game that we had invented, but it was a thing. So when my mom would say, it's time to come in, guys, we would look at each other, and we would take off running as fast as we could for the back door. Now, this was a, like, old house. The back door had cement steps. You'd race up as fast as you could barefoot. I can remember what it felt like to, like, jam your toe into the cement as you're going up. And the first person who'd get there, me and my brother, would quick slam the door shut. It was a big, huge wood frame door that had wood down the middle and uh, panels, but there's glass. Does that make sense? So big wood frame, lots of glass panels, okay? And that day I won, 
And I got up there, and whoever got there first would shut the door as fast as they could and hold it while the other one tried to get in, and you'd mock them. It was a fun game. <laughs> so I got there first, and I was holding it, and he was, like, fighting. And then I looked up, and I saw something I'd never seen before. It was that lock. I don't know what you call it. The locks that go like this. And I reached up, and I did it. And then I had hands free, and I could mock him in so many different ways. It was terrific. And he was getting pissed. And he started banging on the glass, and then it happened. It shattered the door. He shattered the door. Now, I just want to remind you, a seven- and a five-year-old barefoot, glass everywhere, and if you've ever broke anything, you know how long those breaking noises go on. It felt like an eternity that we were just being showered in glass. And when that horrible noise finally stopped, there was another noise, <laughs> and it was my dad's huge feet coming closer to us. And we just stood there looking at each other. My brother had, like, his hands were bleeding, just terrified about what was going to happen. And my dad got there, and he screamed, look at what you did. Figure it out yourselves. You guys are worthless. No, he didn't really say that. <laughs> you laugh because no dad would say that to his kids, right? Like, clearly we had screwed up. But he came in. He, like, pushed the glass away, came and scooped me up opened what was left of the door, <laughs> scooped my brother up, brought us over, worked on cleaning up Kyle, hadn't said anything about the glass yet. Because you guys, any dad who's worth anything would not leave his children in the mess they created bleeding, right? You wouldn't think for one second that any good dad would do that. But why do some of us think that God does? I mean, think about that. We really think that God leaves us in the mess that we created because we deserve it, and he says, oh, I'm going to watch you bleed. Or some of us think, oh, my gosh, I have to clean this mess up before I can even reach out to him because he'll have nothing to do with what I've done. We actually have more trust in our earthly fathers than in our heavenly fathers. The introduction of sin into the world left God with a choice. He could have either walked away, washed his hands clean, said, wow, that was horrible. Or he could roll up his sleeves, wade in the mess with us, and start fixing it. And that's just what he did. He came into the mess that you made, that I made, the mess that we deserve, and he scoops us up and saves us. So just a few things that I hope that you've heard so far is that God, Jesus raised the behavioral standards so high that we realize we're all broken. None of us is without sin. And he never minimized the seriousness of sin, but he never condemned sinners. And that God is on the endless pursuit of restoring his relationships with sinners. I want to turn a little corner now and talk about how this pursuit started, just so you understand, and it's going to set us up for next week. So everything has a starting point, right? Are you sick of me saying that yet? No. I'm going to keep saying it. Um, and the story, like the faith story, the story of faith for us has a starting point. And I want to tell you about that. And if you're anything like me, you hate history class. Like, I didn't pay attention to anything. My son will roll off facts about, like, when wars were. I'm like, eh, and he's eight, and he knows more than me. But this is interesting, so you should listen up. All of the three largest faith traditions, so I'm talking about Christianity, um, Judaism, and Islam, they all have the same starting point. Do you know that? They all say that a God, they call them different names, but a God created a perfect earth and created um, Adam, the first man, and that sin entered the earth. So all three have that same belief. And then they also all say that after sin entered the earth, that God started his restoration plan through one man. 
and that man's name was Abraham. Who in this room has heard of Abraham? Yeah, most of us have heard of Abraham. And all three major religions agree that Abraham was like the founding father. And then right after Abraham is where they all kind of split, and we'll talk about that in a second. What I want to tell you about Abraham is that he wasn't a perfect guy. Actually, I'm pretty sure this is, I know this is true. I'm just going to say that confidently. Um, at one point, Pharaoh saw Abraham's wife and said, oh, I like her. And in that time, if you liked it and you were Pharaoh, you took it. And Abraham was smart enough to know that if he knows that that's my wife and he takes her, he's going to take the rest of my stuff too. So when Pharaoh came and said, oh, I like her, I want her, do you know what Abraham did? He said, that's cool, she's my sister, you can have her. That's not cool. He was not a perfect guy. If you know anything about Abraham, even after God made a covenant with him, he still did some seriously dumb things. So he was not perfect. But God chose to start his restoration plan through this one normal guy. And God made Abraham three promises. He promised that he was going to make him a great nation and that he was going um, to bless him and to make his name great. I mean, the fact that most of you in this room knew Abraham, that's true. And the third promise was that all the peoples of the earth were going to be blessed through him. And another part of these three promises was that he told, uh, he had Abraham look up in the sky one night and he said, do you see how many stars you can see? And back then when there wasn't lights, you could see tons of stars. He said, I'm going to make your descendants to outnumber the stars. And here's the crazy part, is that Abraham had no kids. He was super old at this point, and his wife was super old, and they couldn't have kids. So this promise seemed impossible. But this next part is where you need to listen. There's one single statement that happened here that showed that this was the starting point of God's restoring his relationship with his people. In Genesis 15, 6, it says these words. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteous. So what that means is Abraham stood there that night when God made that promise, when God said, you're going to have as many descendants, more than there are stars. And Abraham knew that he didn't have a kid, and he knew that it appeared that him and his wife were too old and that they couldn't have kids. And he simply said, you know what, it's hard to believe, but okay, I believe you. In one statement of Abraham saying, I believe, I believe what you say, I believe your promises. God gave Abraham a right standing with God. God forgave all the dumb things that Abraham had done, all the dumb things that he would do, and God said, I accept you because you believe and you trust in me. Trusting God resulted in a right standing with God. For the first time since sin had entered the world, a human being could have right standing with God. And that's what started faith. God made it so simple. You just have to believe that's how you have a right standing with God. But we've messed it up so bad. Even these three major faith traditions, right? You know, all you have to do is believe. The Jews said, yeah, you have to believe and you have to be a Jew. So they added that. And um, Islam said, yep, you have to, um, you know, do all these uh, acts. You have to do all these acts and you have to believe in the prophets. And then at the end, Allah will decide if your like, good works outweigh your bad. And then Christians, we've done it a hundred different ways, trying to combine faith, works, and we add our own little add-ons. It's so simple, yet we've missed it. So please hear this tonight. Don't miss the simple truth. This is a truth that started 4,000 years ago, before there was Judaism, before there was Christianity, before there was Islam, before any of that. God revealed himself and said it simply, that the way to have a right standing with God is to trust him. 
even when it seems impossible. Trust what he says he's going to do and trust that he follows through with his promises. What if the starting point of our relationship with God is to trust, simply trust, nothing more? And God tells us that we can be in a right standing with him through faith in him. Will you guys pray with me? God, I don't know how many different times in history, how many different ways in the Bible, in our own lives, you just constantly show us that you are willing to wade in the mess that we've created, God. Over and over and over throughout history, we screw things up and you come in and you save us. And God, we just admit that we, uh, we don't always believe that and we don't live our lives like we believe that. And because we are too ashamed to say what we really are, we try to make up our own rules. And God, we just confess that as a group tonight. And I don't know about everyone else, but I think that I'm getting tired of that way. So thank you for being patient with us. And thank you for loving us enough to keep giving us chance after chance. And God, my prayer is that you continue to be gentle with us and remind us that we're broken and that we're sinners and that we need you and we need to be saved by you. God, thank you for Jesus. Um, thank you for him dying on the cross and thank you for his blood, which was our way back to you. I pray this all in your name. Stand together.